My guest today is Uther Naismith. He is a British citizen and has studied law at the University of Oxford and has just completed a master's degree in law at the University of Edinburgh. He was a member of the British Labour Party from 2015 to 2022. He has also written political and academic articles for organizations including the Labour Party, the Fabian Society, which is the world's oldest socialist think tank, and a British-based Haldine Society for Socialist Lawyers on topics ranging from constitutional reform and freedom of contract to deindustrialization, land ownership, and the future of socialism in the 20th century. He is here today to talk to us about everything British politics. How long are you so, um, sorry. expecting this? Oh, sorry, uh, I was just asking how long are you expecting it to be? I would say like maybe 30, 40 minutes or so. If we, can, okay, if we go longer, because I have another one at 10, but if we do go longer than that, we can. Um, so uh, basically, uh, welcome to the podcast, Uther. Um, can you describe your, no problem. Can you describe your background and what motivated you to become involved in left-wing uh, activism? Yeah, sure. So um, my background is... Um, I have a law degree from the University of Oxford, and I've just completed a law degree, a master's degree in law at the University of Edinburgh. Um, why I, I sort of got involved with left-wing politics? Well, um, two reasons, really. One one is I grew up in poverty, and mm -hmm. I, I think there's a strong sense amongst a lot of people that if, if you're from um, a more working-class background, the left-wing is... You know, maybe not perfect, but <laughs> it's it's a clear choice between left and right as as to which which one your interests lie with. Um, but also, um, my parents raised me with a sort of strong moral values to believe in justice and dignity and human rights and so on and so forth. And well, you know, I I find generally those values align more with the left wing than with the right wing. Um, and and why i got into activism specifically was um <laughs> funnily enough it was to support the uh leadership election of jeremy corbyn as leader of the british labor party in 2015 uh jeremy corbyn is sort of the british bernie sanders if if, if you will uh this old school left winger who, who whose positions are sort of quite radical compared with compared with most politicians and i got into activism to support him because i and a lot of others at the time felt like he was one of the few politicians who talked about issues that that matter to ordinary people like housing and healthcare and education and so on all right so what does your activism consist of yeah um well, um, in the past, I was a member of, as I say, a member of the Labour Party in Britain. And 
that a lot of that involves, you know, going to local meetings and during election times, you, you go out and canvass for votes, you know, knocking on people's doors and explaining the policies to them and saying, would you consider maybe voting for us, please? And all, all, that, all that kind of stuff that is part of election campaigns. Um, I also attended a couple of conferences as a delegate, uh, attended um, uh, one of the young Labour, the youth wing of the Labour Party, one of the young Labour conferences. You uh, sort of debate and vote on policy motions to sort of create the party platform or help create the party platform. Uh, and I've also given a few speeches here and there on uh, topics like healthcare and human rights and sort of left wing politics more generally. Uh, however, in 2022, I left the Labour Party in disagreement with, with the new direction it's been taking under its current leader, a man called Keir Starmer. Uh, and I'm currently sort of a uh, an unaffiliated voter, uh, at least between the major parties. And, um, well, my activism now consists much more of um, writing, political writing, uh, stuff like articles for, or try, trying to write articles for left-wing journals and media publications and stuff like that. I hope that sums it up. Hey, that's, that's, uh, that actually did sum it up. Now, you said you left the Labour Party because of the direction. So I'm assuming the Labour Party, that's like the left-wing party? Um, yeah, yeah. Now, is that the most left-wing party? Because I know in Britain, you guys have multiple parties, where here in the U.S., we really only have two. So um, why did you uh, – what What about the direction caused you to leave the Labour Party? And are there any other political parties that you're looking at that, uh, that seem uh, like that you might be interested in getting involved with? Yeah, yeah. Um... So the Labour Party is sort of Britain's centre-left party, roughly analogous to the Democrats. Uh, and our Conservative Party, which is currently in government, is sort of like the Republican Party. And we do have other parties. Uh, we have the Liberal Democrats. Um, and they're sort of like, oh, how would you sum them up? Sort of moderate internationalist liberals. You have the Green Party, who are environmentalists, uh, and, and you have a bunch of other parties as well of sort of sort of fringe parties on on both the far right wing and the far left wing. Uh, I am actually a member of another political party um, called the Breakthrough Party, which was uh, or is sorry a a sort of small uh, democratic socialist political party set up in twenty twenty one, I believe to sort of oppose the direction of, of the Labour Party. So I joined that. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a promising venture. We'll see. We'll see how it turns out. We'll see if they manage to get their feet off the ground. But the reason why I left Labour is because the new leader um, has taken the party in a really, really right wing direction and abandoned a lot of the policies that made me, well, all of the policies that made me want to vote for the Labour Party in the first place. So um, promises like abolishing tuition fees, renationalising public services and bringing them into state control like water and electricity and stuff, uh, railways, going back on promises to bring in more rights for labour unions. Uh, I mean, that one was a really big one for me. 
um, and and he's just sort of abandoned all of these promises one by one. And, uh, you know, you have to have a red line somewhere and say enough is enough. And when he first got elected, I really, really tried to give him the benefit of the doubt, say, no, no, let's see where he takes it. Maybe he will unify the party, maybe be a sort of like Joe Biden-like figure, not perfect, but doing some good things. But he's just completely lost my trust and confidence. And, you know, you, you have to say enough is enough. Yeah. Um. I uh, the things you mentioned, uh, like the issues with your party, I kind of feel the same way about the Democrats. I feel like uh, around 2016, the whole kind of wor world kind of shifted to the right. Um, in America, you know, the Democrats, um, you know, they're left wing in America, but it, compared to anywhere else in the world, they would be considered right wing. So my question for you is, why does it seem like there was a shift to the right. And does it seem like the right wing has been growing uh, exponentially a lot more um, than the left? And why do you think that is? Mm, interesting question. Um, why do I think there was a shift in 2016? Well, I mean, a lot, a lot of things happened in 2016. There was obviously the election of Donald Trump in America. There was Brexit. In, in the UK. Um, I, I think really over the past sort of 10 to 15 years, there's been a real sort of drift to the right wing ever since the, um, the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, this crisis destroyed people's livelihoods uh, all over the world, you know, unemployment, poverty, inequality, ballooning inequality. And yet for some reason, people have, as, as you say, drifted to the right wing rather than, than the left wing and sort of 2016 was the turning point I think when it suddenly became noticeable for a lot of people that this was happening um, but you know a lot of people <laughs> I, I speak to a lot of people who are quite confused by this and say well you know surely if if there's more poverty and more inequality af after the 2008 financial crisis people ought to be voting for left wing parties because those are the ones that want to tackle these issues. Um, but you've seen a lot of people who were traditionally left-wing, um, not just in America, but in Britain and all across the world, you know, in, in France, in Germany, voters who were working-class voters who used to be sort of supporters of left-wing parties who have gone over to the extreme right, like... Uh, trying to think of an example, like Pennsylvania steelworkers voting for Donald Trump because he mm -hmm. promises to bring the jobs back and America first, you know, to them means um, protectionism and ending the outsourcing and industry. And, and you have a lot of very, very bitter and angry people who've been left behind by the sort of creation of this global neoliberal economic system who now find their interests or at least perceive their interests to be better represented by the right wing than um <coughs> sorry excuse no, me no you're okay cheers than the left wing um and saw similar things in britain where a lot of working class communities like um places where they used to have coal mining and shipbuilding and the steel industry and textiles all these things for 
you know, decades were solid seats for the constituencies for the Labour Party wouldn't dream of voting Conservative. It would be like spitting on their parents' graves almost. Um, and suddenly now you find a lot of them voting for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party and Brexit and all these sort of right-wing political ideas. And yeah, it's it's definitely happened. Um, as as for why, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I think uh, that's that's a far too big question for me to answer. If I had to hazard a guess, I'd say I think the declining living standards um, have really, really sort of made people feel quite concerned about the modern world and all these culture war issues you see. I think they're really reflections of underlying economic divisions. You know, your first instinct in a crisis is to pull up the drawbridge to isolate yourself. And, and that's how a lot of these movements, these right wing movements have been been responding and it sort of has an alluring appeal to it um so yeah i think i think yeah. it's a lot of complex factors but that that's the one that sticks out for me yeah i think you summed it up i think uh that um we've become a sort of global economy and a lot of uh jobs have been shipped overseas and they haven't really done anything to kind of shore up uh the base at least the left wing hasn't um, I've, here in America, I feel like left wing does a poor job of reaching out to working class people, especially like working class, uh, poor white people. Mm. Um, do, do you feel the same way in Britain? Because I kind of feel like left wing people kind of come off as kind of like this hoity toity, better than thou, and it kind of turns off a lot of working class people. Um, at least here in America, is it the same over in Britain? Or I oh sorry. Yeah, I, I do very, very much think it's the same in Britain. Um, and, and, you know, it's a shame because you, you go back to the past and some of the most, all the most, you know, fierce, most passionate left-wing, you know, labour unionists, socialist politicians, these people were leaders of and belonged to a working-class movement. Like, look at Eugene Debs, for example, a personal hero of mine. Um and and the, the 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 sort of left wing political movement has lost its base, which was in the trade union movement. Um, and part of part of why you see more working class people becoming politically apathetic or going over to the right wing, part of it is because they don't like the left and the values they perceive the left as representing. But another part of it, I think, is is the sort of complete destruction of the trade unions in, in the modern world. You know, like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher did a huge amount of work to destroy the power of organised labour. You know, the, in, in, in America, it was the um, air traffic controllers that went on strike and were all sacked by the government, sort of like um, terminated basically without notice and, and replaced by think military scabs or something like that and in britain it was the miners strike and margaret thatcher's government passed a bunch of anti-union laws and you see you know like in the union membership going up and up in the 50s in the 60s in the 70s and then in the 1980s bang uh, millions of people left that movement because it could no longer guarantee them prosperity and real improvements in their lives and suddenly you know um you couldn't have a household where one person worked and supported a family. That that became 
a dream, a, a utopian dream for most people. Um, and I think the fact that we now live in a world where we're expected to be individuals and indivi and compete with each other, constant competition for resources, for jobs, for pay rises and promotions and stuff, rather than seeing our interests in the collective interests of the working class. Um, and this change sort of being brought on by the death of the trade unions as a serious political force, I, th I think that's why that the, the left has lost its material base, if you will, which existed in the sort of representative of, of the, the representative institutions of the working class. And and that's why I think it's so great to see stuff like the Amazon labor union and, and the Starbucks workers organizing in America and similar stuff in other places. It gives me hope that we can find our way back, back to that movement. Yeah, I hope so too. But um, I'll be honest with you. I'm not, I don't have that much enthusiasm. <laughs> um, I think that that Amazon labor last time I checked has kind of stalled out, you know, oh, and that's then, a shame. Yeah. Uh, so let's switch gears here a little bit. I want to ask about Brexit. Uh, you know, I know this is a huge and complex topic, but I want to kind of like just kind of like boil it down to what it is here in America. You know, when it comes to like news and things like that, it's very hard to get a concrete uh, like idea of what's going on. So, like, first of all, what is Brexit? Why did people want it? and how it has it affected uh, the British economy? Okay. Well, I mean, very, very simply, Brexit was um, the vote by Britain in a referendum to exit the European Union. Uh, the European Union, of course, being the sort of European trading block of uh, 27 nations. I think it's now 27 nations now, now that we've left that make laws and pass regulations to sort of facilitate commerce and the flow of money and trade between the different nations of the European Union. And gosh, the reason why, well, that's a very complicated question. We voted to leave. Well, it depends who you ask. I, I think there's two ways of looking at it. Some people say it was because the British population are a bunch of racists and um, it was mostly motivated by hatred for refugees and immigrants. And, you know, if you look at it, the Leave campaign really, really sort of uh, whipped up, led by Nigel Farage, whipped up hatred of immigrants and said, we have to vote to leave because while we're in the European Union, we have all these foreigners coming here and taking jobs for British workers. And, and that's not something we want. Um, they're unruly, they're dangerous, etc. Sort of like a pro-vote Donald Trump. Um, <clears throat> and, and there was a lot of genuine racism during the campaign. And, and most horrifically, you know, almost immediately after we voted to leave, we saw quite a big spike in hate crimes against um, foreigners and ethnic minorities. Uh, terrible stuff. So there was a racist element to it. But there was also another element, which was that after several years of austerity under a conservative government and several decades of neoliberalism since Margaret Thatcher, a lot of British people uh, were 
and I think still are, very, very fed up of the political elites and seeing the decline in their living standards, seeing, you know, their communities going to the dogs. And to a lot of people, it was an act of rebellion against what they feel is a sort of elitist and out-of-touch globalist system, an economy that doesn't work for them, a a society that is cold-hearted and and does not represent their values or their community. And so it it was a combination, I think, of those, those two factors. There are other reasons you can go into it, but I think those are the main two trends I can see. The impacts, well... I I couldn't say exactly what it is. I'm not an economist by any means, but um, it it certainly has had an impact. Um, there have been you know lorries queuing up in in the south of England. <laughs> the, the amount really the biggest impact I think it's had is it's now it now takes such a colossal amount of bureaucracy to import things from Europe and send things to Europe. Everything has become so much slower. Uh, and it's sort of gummed up the logistics system, and, and it has had some pretty bad economic consequences. But with the war in Ukraine and sort of general decline of the world economy, it, it almost feels like it's fairly inconsequential these days. Yeah. Um, are are the British people happy with the outcome of Brexit? Or <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, you're you're asking me a bunch of tough questions today. No, it's a good thing. Um, it really depends who you ask. I, I think if I had to guess, I would say most people probably don't want to go back in. Most people probably think, well, okay, it's had some pros, some cons, but we made the decision now we might as well stick with it. People really don't want to revisit the issue and, you know, no politician really is willing to do it because we had the referendum and we carried out the result. There's there's no sense, you know, crying over spilled milk. Let's just make the best of it. There, there, <clears throat> sorry, there, there certainly are some people who really feel very strongly that we have to rejoin as soon as possible. But I, I think they're just a very vocal minority, to be honest. How do you feel? Do you think... Uh you should rejoin the European Union or stay out? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sort of quite anti-EU. I don't have any problems really with immigration. I, I don't mind foreigners. I think, you know, a little bit of cultural diversity is quite a nice thing. and They do contribute. But the problem I have with the European Union is I don't think it represents working people very well or working class people. It was set up to facilitate, you know, the the free movement of money and wealth and trade. And very, very often it sort of protects those interests, those wealthy uh, business interests, even when it's not beneficial to ordinary people. And, um, well, you know, I have a law degree. I had to study European law and I was horrified by some of the things that that the um, sort of courts of the European Union say about things like the right to strike and the rights of workers. So I'm quite a big critic of the European Union. Uh, It does some good, but not enough to outweigh the negatives for me. And I think, you know, um, I I wasn't old enough to vote at the time of the referendum. But if there was another one, I'd I'd probably vote to stay out. I think let's, let's make the best of the opportunity we've got. Gotcha. Um, so since 2016, um, you have had four 
different prime ministers. There was Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and uh, recently now you have, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Rishi Sunak. Is that right? All right. Yeah. Um, why have there been so much changeover and what has the effect been on the British people? Okay. Interesting. Well, Theresa May, um, Theresa May basically was sort of forced out of office because of the debates over Brexit. She she was very, very pro-Brexit and tried her best to negotiate a deal, but it was a very long, drawn-out process. And it was felt she handled it incredibly incompetently and couldn't couldn't negotiate a deal that was would satisfy parliament and the public so she she was sort of forced out by boris johnson who came in said <clears throat> let's get brexit done very simple message won a, a massive sort of uh landslide victory for the conservative party in the general election of 2019 which I was, of course, very disappointed by. I was, <laughs> I was campaigning for Labour at the time. It was very, very miserable. Um, but, but he sort of came in, and then the COVID pandemic hit, uh, and 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 we really, really struggled to deal with that. And the government made a number of enormous mistakes about how to handle it, like stuff like um, letting hospital, letting people who were positive with coronavirus. Uh, care home patients who were in hospital with coronavirus, sending them back to care homes to free up hospital beds. And then, of course, they infected all, all the other yeah. people in the care home, like really brutal, brutal mismanagement. Uh, but the thing that got Boris Johnson in the end was the news that he'd been having parties in Downing Street. You know, he passed passed the law saying, oh, you know, you have to do social distancing and wear a mask and everything and no large gatherings and meanwhile him and his colleagues were <laughs> getting drunk in in his office basically and, and throwing parties for all all the staff and stuff really really embarrassing scandal uh and and he was forced to resign and Liz Truss came in uh and she lasted I can't even remember it was only like a couple of weeks yeah. basically yeah um <clears throat> yeah and the reason why she had to resign was because she screwed up the economy basically from day one her budget <clears throat> her budget was very very right wing it was all about cutting taxes cutting taxes you know all the all the standard right wing fare supporting the hedge funds the banks and so on uh but it, it met with such hostility from the market that she was forced out by the Tory party because almost overnight they they lost their reputation for economic <laughs> credibility. <clears throat> and and the cumulative effect of all these different political scandals and failures, I think the public trust in politicians in Britain was already low, but I'd say it's non-existent at the moment. You speak to people and they just don't care about politics. At best, they treat it like a joke. You know, you, you, you couldn't convince a lot of people to care one way or the other. Huge amounts of apathy because, you know, if, if, if people are so incompetent in politics, what's the point in even voting? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel the same way here. Um, mm -hmm. Boris Johnson, he seems like kind of a character. Like what what's up with his hair? You know, I thought <laughs> Donald Trump had crazy hair, but then I see this guy. Like, what's his whole, like, story, you know? Like, he just seems like the, like the last kind of person anybody would vote for, you know? Mm. 
Well, I think people people sort of were fond of him because he came across like a bit of a joker and it it made him seem down to earth, you know, relatable to the common man. I mean, never mind the fact that he's from an incredibly uh, elite family and <clears throat> went to um, Eton and Oxford, um, you know, and, and spent his entire life mooching around in sort of wealthy idleness, as, as it were. So he's he's a very, very upper-class gentleman who worked very hard to create this sort of public persona of him as relatable and down-to-earth to hide the fact that he comes from an incredibly upper-class background and, you know, doesn't give a damn about ordinary people. And, you know, it, it worked. It worked. And and I think the hair was part of part of the mystique, part of the charm and the charisma. Because um, it made him look slightly goofy, you know. You can't find a man like that threatening someone. Someone like, um, oh, I don't know, Margaret Thatcher. <clears throat> you have to take her seriously because she takes herself seriously. You can't, you can't do that with Boris Johnson because he, yeah. he plays the clown. It's interesting. It's kind of comparable to Donald Trump, you know, because mm. Donald Trump, he's this wealthy guy who's born with a. Some people say silver spoon. I say uh, diamond. Uh, spoon in his mouth and you know but people here a lot of working class poor people kind of see him as being on their side when really he only cares about himself um so this the most recent prime minister rishi sunak uh he's the first non-white um prime minister how did the british people react to that and what is their perception of him Oh, interesting. Uh, quite well, I think. The reaction was quite muted. I mean, you always get some online trolls, but, but generally people had no objection to um, to having a sort of non-white prime minister. Uh, what, sorry, what was the second part of that question? Oh, uh, what is the perception of him? You know, uh, okay. like uh, here in America, you know, we had Obama and there was like, a, you know, he's the first black uh, president. And there was a huge, you know, outpouring of like celebration. And also some people were upset about that. Was it similar in Britain when uh, oh, interesting. he selected? Well, nobody was really upset. Um, there there was, I think, some like, um, what's the word? Cel- celebrating. Yeah, there was some celebrating amongst the British Indian community because, of course, he's, he's of Indian descent. Uh, and so they were quite pleased about it. But I, th- I think here we, we sort of, have judged Rishi Sunak on his um, his policies, not not his ethnicity. Uh, he he is quite an elitist individual as well, you know, and he he c- couldn't hide it even if he wanted to. You know, the man's effectively a billionaire. His wife is sort of from a family of industrialists. Uh, they do all sorts of. Um, Oh, do you know what? I better not say that because that might be libel. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, don't want to get cancelled or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but they're certainly um, elitist individuals. That's that's a very very fair fair thing to say about them. No, nobody could deny that. I think my favourite story is um, a Rishi Sunak visit. This, this is completely true. Is on the news. Uh, Rishi Sunak visiting a homeless shelter and going up to a homeless man and saying, "So, are you in business then?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. 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 
And <laughs> the economy, <laughs> the economy is in such a dire position. I think the Tory party in general, you know, they could have any leader in the world and it wouldn't make a difference. I think I think the public has sort of lost trust in them to manage the economy and they are on the way out of the next election, in my opinion. You heard it here first. So um, the royal family, you know, here in America, everybody is like obsessed with like, you know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and uh, William and uh, I forget his wife's name, but, you know, everybody, you know, they're all on the tabloids and things like that. What role does the royal family play in UK politics, if at all? Okay, well, mm, again, it depends who you ask. So many of these questions. I mean, Britain is a very divided society sometimes. Generally, they have no day-to-day influence over politics. They create sort of a very, very good stream of uh, newspaper articles for, for like the gossip columns and stuff, but, but they don't influence politics generally. However, there is some uh, privileges they have over the legislative system to... Uh, effectively veto legislation where it affects them personally. And this has been used sort of to do things like protect their tax privileges, uh, to protect their wealth, essentially. Uh, I don't know all the details offhand, but but it's been talked about and reported on in some of the more, more liberal newspapers like The Guardian. So... You know, they couldn't, the, the, the king couldn't, you know, come into the House of Parliament to dismiss the prime minister and say, you're, you're all incompetent. Generally, Britain is a democratic country, but they, they, they have some sort of soft power to, to persuade and advise and interfere behind the scenes by writing letters and stuff. So that's, that's the power of the British monarchy today. All right. So one thing you said is that you are a socialist. That is correct, right? So yeah, I know oh, this is, uh, you know, a huge topic. Um, you know, capitalism is destroying the planet, you know. And, and one thing you said in your emails, you said the only way forward for the human race is to socialism. Like, how do we even start to begin that shift? And I know that's a huge question, but like, how do we get there? How do we begin to transition uh, personally, I don't think it's possible. I think that uh, there would have to be some kind of total collapse of our whole system before socialism could even begin. But how how do we do that? How do we start to transition to socialism? Um, is it as easy as just getting more liberal politicians in office or, you know? Um, just before I answer that, do you mind if I um top up my water? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sure, yeah. I'll come back in one. Hey, no problem. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but are you looking to reach a dynamic and engaged audience of curious minds? Well, look no further. Bright Brains Podcast is the perfect platform to showcase your business or product. You'll be able to reach a diverse and intelligent audience and engage with listeners passionate about personal development, technology, and more. Elevate your brand through thought-provoking discussions. Don't miss this opportunity to promote your business on one of the fastest-growing podcasts in the market. 
Contact us today to discuss advertising options and elevate your brand to the next level. Contact us at brightbrainspod at gmail.com to secure your advertising spot on Bright Brains today. Again, that's brightbrains with a Z pod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Now, back to the podcast. Right, I'm back. Yeah, no so how, how do we how do we start to achieve socialism? Well, I think your scepticism is shared by a lot of people. There's so many people in the world who say, socialism, it's a great idea, but it could never work for all sorts of different reasons. You know, <laughs> the biggest ones include stuff like, oh, it's not in human nature, etc. It's nonsense, it's totally unscientific. But, but there's a widespread scepticism, and I think we on the left, we in the socialist movement, have to respect that and meet people halfway uh, and do the best that we can to sort of overcome these arguments through rational rational means of persuasion. Um, well, regarding how you actually go about starting it, um, will a crisis, a sort of general global crisis, might not be as far away as you think? I think I think with with climate change, um, you know, there there is going to have to be some kind of radical change to to the way our planet works, one way or the other. And I think over the next twenty years, you you'll see a lot more crises sort of spurred on by environmental disasters, and you're going to see millions of refugees moving across the world which is going to cause uh, an even bigger right-wing backlash than there is now, and you're going to have political turmoil, people arguing over sort of increasingly limited resources. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what the world looks like in 20 years. May, maybe we'll all be ready for socialism, um, and hopefully there'll, there'll be a strong socialist movement there ready, ready and waiting to uh, answer the call, as it were. And so, in a sense, we have to sort of start thinking in the long term and building up a sort of independent political socialist movement now to think about the future and what's going to happen in the future and how, how can we sort of play our part in protecting the planet um, or at the very least picking up the pieces afterwards. Um, but in the meantime... Uh, the the solution certainly, I think, is not to elect more more liberal politicians. I mean, well, it depends what you mean by liberal, because in, I, I better I better stop to make a make a point out of this. Actually, in in Britain, uh, the terms liberal and conservative have slightly different meanings. I mean, it's becoming more Americanized because you guys are like the the sort of culturally dominate the entire rest of the world, really. But but. Generally, liberal would not include socialist or communist or whatever in Britain. Uh, liberal sort of is a more, much more moderate and centrist ideology. So people like Joe Biden and um, Hillary Clinton, ra rather than sort of more socialist figures like Bernie Sanders. So, so if you mean liberal in that sense, no, the solution is is not more liberal politicians, but electing people like Bernie Sanders might make a difference in the short term. It won't lead us to salvation, but, you know, it's better than nothing. I, I think the biggest thing is to try and bring back the trade union movement and get the working class organising themselves. You know, the, the, the basic 
idea of socialism, you know, even people like Karl Marx say similar things, is that the working class themselves have to be the ones to free themselves from capitalism. It's it's those who are exploited who have to free themselves from capitalism. Um, it, we're not going to be saved by politicians or celebrities. You know, you've got to get out there in your community and, and actually speak to your neighbours and your friends and organise something in your community. And, and, you know, especially trade unions are, are an excellent place to start. I think that's what you've got to do. You, you've got to build up a sort of political organisation street by street, as it were. Yeah, I agree. And um, it feels like uh, everybody is sort of atomized. You know, communities are breaking down. And uh, if if we do want to have that kind of socialist world, we kind of have to build back up our communities. And like you said, politicians aren't going to save us. I agree with you 100% on that. Um, so I just have a, one last little question. I just want to do like this kind of little rapid fire uh, thing. And I just like kind of throw out some issues and just kind of like, just kind of like a quick little like okay. explanation. Um, so one thing I keep hearing about in Britain is knife crime. Uh, there's <laughs> been a huge increase in knife crime. You know, here in America, we have a gun problem. Looks like you guys have a knife problem. So what, what's the cause of that? And what's, what has been going on to try and like kind of fix that? Gosh, um, I, I don't know what they're doing to fix it, but I'd say the cause is increased poverty uh, and sort of public spending cuts, closure of youth centres and stuff like that. It's mismanagement by public services, pushing young sort of working class children towards the gangs. Yeah. Uh, Margaret Thatcher. She destroyed British industry. Uh, a lot of working class people still hate her. Whatever you might think, this is distasteful, but a lot of working class people celebrated when she died. Um, she was the bitter enemy of the trade unions, and she was basically responsible for the collapse and outsourcing of of all of the sort of heavy British industrial jobs. Uh, Meghan Markle. Oh, okay. Um, so shockingly sort of hated by the British public, especially sort of older white men. I don't have a problem with it myself. She she's a celebrity. I feel neither here nor there. Yeah, same. Um, Jimmy Seville. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, well, we we should have seen it a lot sooner, and there are a lot of dodgy things where people sort of didn't ask questions they shouldn't have asked. They should have asked. Um, and you know it. Well, gosh, yeah. Uh, never should have been allowed to 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 go that long without facing justice, or indeed never facing justice. Yeah. Um. So here's the last question. Um, if you could have the prime minister do one thing in Britain, like if you had the ear of Rishi and he said he would do one thing, uh, what would you have him do? Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question. I would have him repeal all the anti-trade union laws because we have some of the most strict anti-trade union laws in, in the entire Western world. Um, it makes it a nightmare to actually organize and go out on a strike. <laughs> workers' rights in many cases are a lot worse in America than they are in Britain. But the one thing you do better is trade union rights. And, and what I would give to have a British version of the uh, National Labor Relations Board, that would be my one change. 
Yeah, that'd be one change. Awesome. Well, hey, this was a great interview. I learned a lot. Um, where can people go online to find you? Um, you know, do you have like a website <laughs> or blog or anything like I, that? I don't actually. No, I don't use social media. I got rid of it because I found myself wasting too much time rowing with people on Twitter about politics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, no, I'm afraid there's no way you can go and look me up. But it, uh, what I'll say is uh, if you want to learn more about socialism, go and look at the website, the World Socialist Movement, because they have a bunch of really great sort of articles and um, sort of like pieces about what it means and why we should have it. <laughs> awesome. All right, then. Well, hey, thank you for coming on and uh, take care. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thanks. Have a good day. Well, no problem. All right. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us for another enlightening conversation here on Bright Brains. I hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration to fuel your own bright ideas. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform or however else you listen to this podcast. Also, we can be found on all major social media. Just type in Bright Brains with a Z. And remember, the brightest minds are those that never stop seeking knowledge.